Sorry, don't mind me. Okay, we're good. That's good now. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book, the Gospel of Matthew. We're picking up Matthew in chapter 24, starting in verse 1 of chapter 24. As you know, I have been working my way through what's normally called Passion Week. We started with the supper in Bethany. Then we went to the, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. The Monday where the temple was cleansed. Tuesday, the day of controversy where he taught in the temple and confounded the teachers there. We are now looking at late. Tuesday afternoon, okay, to get an idea of what time it is, it's late Tuesday afternoon, and again, if you've been to Israel, especially at this time of year, it's probably the nicest time of year you can go there, this this time around May, April, the crops are growing, it's green, the, the coldness of the winter is gone, it's warm, the sun's shining. It's a beautiful time of year. And they've come out from the temple. It is the last time that he will ever enter this temple. It's gone, it's finished. And he goes over, and it's interesting that they, they we're going to show him the temple. But before we go any further, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your teaching. Lord, we thank you for the way you've told us and taught us so much. We pray now that our hearts and minds might be open to what you have us to learn this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there was, there, there's an impression here in this first verse. And Jesus went out, departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. There's a little almost an impression here, like, you know, we're, we're men of the world, we're, we're been around Jerusalem, and, and this... Uh, you know, this guy from Galilee, you know, he hasn't really seen that much. Let's show him all the fantastic stuff there is in the temple. Now, the temple was a magnificent construction. In one other passage it says, 46 years was this temple in building. 46 years to build it. And that wasn't just because it was a government construction job, it was... It was because it was a magnificent building. And it took, at, at 46 years, it hadn't even been finished. So, but do you think that Jesus didn't know what the temple looked like? Do you think he didn't understand what the temple was like? Even if he, when was the first time he visited the temple? When he was eight days old. Right. He'd been there a lot. He knew the temple. There's another thing too. 
The plan of the temple is based on the plan of the, the, the tabernacle, okay? The, the, the tabernacle was made to be moved. The temple was a stone version, if you like. The design was given to Moses. Fair enough. Where did the design come from? Do you realise this temple is a copy? It's a copy. It's not an original. And I don't mean it's a copy of Nebuchadnezzar's te temple or anything like that. No, it's a copy of the temple in heaven. Yeah. For the things on earth are a shadow, are a copy, are a reflection, are a not quite as good as the things in heaven. So, did Jesus know what the temple looked like? Of course he did, because he'd seen the original. But anyhow, we digress for a moment, but that's just a, a little thought to, to consider. They come and they show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, verse 2, See ye not all these things? For verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He says, See all this? Looks great. It's all temporary. It's all going to go. It's all going to be gone. Nothing. Now, one of the things that you do get to understand when you go into the temple, or the temple mount, the Wailing Wall, been there, stood there, put my forehead against the Wailing Wall and surrounded by rows of Jews praying. It's not part of the temple. It's part of the earthworks. It's a retaining wall to hold the dirt up that the temple was built on. Okay? So it's not... It, this is true. This actually happened. The buildings of the temple... Utterly destroyed, thrown down. The, the story is that when it was burnt by the Romans, that the heat melted some of the gold fittings that were in there. And to get the gold out where it had run down in between the stone blocks, they levered the blocks apart so they could get the gold out. Not one stone left upon another. That's what happened. And as, verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, now you've got to understand, he's not at the temple. There's a spot you stand on the Mount of Olives and everybody stands there and everybody gets their picture taken because it's the classic spot to get your picture taken in Jerusalem. They got, I think they've got little holes drilled in the stone to sit the camera legs in because it's just... The spot. And you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking across to the Temple Mount. That's where he was. Because it gives you a beautiful view of the Temple. And he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples come to him. Actually, four of them come to him. It's recorded that it was Peter, James, John and Andrew. These were the inner four. There were the twelve. You've got to understand that uh, there were layers here, like ogres and onions. You had the, you had the, the outside, you had the 120-odd disciples. We will find recorded in the book of uh, first, first chapter of Acts. 
There were the 70 that were sent out to minister. There were the 12 disciples. And within that 12, there was another little group. Often it was just Peter, James and John, but Andrew got a look in this time. Peter's brother. Two sets of brothers, James and John, Peter and Andrew. They come to him and they say to him, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, and this is where it gets interesting. I put it to you that they were asking one question. In their mind, all these things were the same. The, the destruction of the temple, uh, the signs of your coming, and the end of the world, to them it was one question. But Jesus doesn't answer it as one question. I put it to you that we'll have a look and we'll show that there are in fact three answers. That he answers, first of all, when shall these things be? Then he answers... What shall be the signs of his coming? And then he describes the end of the world. That in fact he answers them not as one question, but as three questions. Now, what prompted this quest these questions? What got them started on this? Well, it was the temple. They came to show him the temple and he says, temple, yeah, looks fancy, not going to last, temporary, gone. And so they say, wow, this temple, this great big huge temple, adjusting something, that's better, this great big huge temple is gone, it's going to go. When's that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Why should this temple disappear? So, when shall these things be is a question related to the temple. When shall these things be is a question prompted by <coughs> the temple. And it's to the temple that we look for the answer to the question, when shall these things be? You think, well, that's simple because there's, there's no temple. How can we understand when shall these things be in relationship to the temple when you go there and there is no temple there? We as... Western Gentiles, which is pretty much I think everybody here, we do not understand how deep the desire for the temple runs in Jewish people. We simply do not understand how... We, we hear, oh yeah, okay, the Jews want their temple back. Yeah, okay. No. It is something that is so deeply bound up in their thinking that we really have trouble getting a grip of it. For example, 
July 7, 1948. The commander-in-chief of the Jewish forces in Jerusalem was a man named David Chattel. They were making their last attempt to retake the old city before the United Nations truce came in. David Chattel took with his troops to the walls of the old city, amongst other things, a lamb. Yes, July 7th, 1948, David Chattel, the general in charge of the Jewish forces of Jerusalem, intended to sacrifice that lamb on the Temple Mount and to virtually reintroduce temple worship. That's how close and how close to the surface and how strongly it abides in the heart of Jewish people. It's interesting that just a, a little while ago, I, uh, I was, of all things, watching a TV show called Dig. That's not a particularly good show. It's basically a murder mystery. But it was interesting to me because it was set in Jerusalem. So as you do when you've been to a city, I'm sitting there watching it going, oh, I, I know that bit. Hey, I, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, I know that spot. Which is really cool. You know, when you see a, a, a show made in a city you've been to, you, you go, oh, yeah, I, I've seen that bit. And it concerns a plot by a bunch of fanatical Jews to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque and to reintroduce temple worship. The whole point being that when the two heroes, an American cop and a Jewish cop, uh, are trying to hunt down these people and stop it, one of them says to the other, it'll provoke a, a, a war, a massive war will start, and it'll be you know just a bloodbath. And, and the other says, yes, that's what they're after. Now, these people actually have got a... Uh, it was made in, in Israel by Jewish people. They've actually got a grip of how much and how deeply they are committed to this concept of temple worship. They are quite happy to see the Middle East go up in flames if they can just start the temple worship again. And in the, the story, these people had a a red heifer and a high priest and the whole thing ready to go. You know, I guarantee that if you went to Jerusalem and you said, we can now start temple worship, out of the cupboards and the warehouses and the closets would come every single thing you need to start temple worship. It's there. They are that committed to it. But there's no temple there now. But there will be in the future. There will be a temple on that site. And that gives the answer to the question, when shall these things be? Because if you look through that book, through, through this chapter, the next time the word when occurs... Is in, is in verse 15. Okay, So, when shall these things be? Verse 15, When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand. When? 
the the when the whole when of this was a, is around the temple, and the when starts with when you see this. When we see what? Well, everybody agrees what that when is. It's found in Daniel chapter nine. Have a look over Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter 9, and there is much in there. There's an awful lot in there. But the important part, we'll, we'll read the, the section. We'll start at verse 22. This, or verse 21. Verse 21 of Daniel chapter 9. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, caused being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most High. Know therefore, and understand, that from the beginning, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Here's where it gets it, because the word abomination is used. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, a lot of complicated stuff in there. The important thing in there is the word abomination. Because Jesus uses the term, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Daniel uses the phrase, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. The same thing. Same reference. These men knew their Bible. They knew their Torah. They knew their, their prophets. When Jesus said the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, they, their minds instantly went to this passage. Nowhere else. Nobody, any sort of Bible interpreter or Bible scholar of any degree, of any consideration, considers that Matthew 24, 15 has any other reference than Daniel 9, 27. 
Now they might argue about what it means and what the connection is and, and what the reference, what the, the joining together of the two is, but everybody agrees that verse and that verse are hooked together. No doubt. So, the when is really simple. The when is when you see the temple made desolate. That's it. That's the when. So we have the when of this question is in the middle of the week or the week of years spoken of in Daniel. Now, this this thing about weeks, uh, it's in Daniel. A lot of people have a bit of trouble with it. It's really simple. Right? When you go and buy eggs, what do you buy them in? No, not a carton. How many do you buy at a time? A dozen, right? So when we refer to a dozen, we mean 12, right? When we refer to you know, a score, right? 20. When we refer to a gross, 144. In Hebrew, when you said a week, you meant seven or something. It was simply a, a, ref, a, a way that they spoke of seven of something, right, was called a week of it. You could probably tell someone to go out and buy a week of apples. You would expect them to come back with seven. It's just a, a shorthand way of referring to things. Right? If I said you had to buy a, a, a dozen socks... You'd come back with 12. Why? Because that's the way you, you understand. These people understood a week simply to mean a group of seven. So the idea of a week of years, while it may be foreign to our thinking, is not foreign to Jewish and to first century Palestinian thinking. It was just a way of referring to it. So in the middle of a week of years, in the middle of seven years the temple becomes desolate. First, there must be a temple. That's the first important thing you need. You've got to have a temple. That means the temple has to be built. And that means somebody, somehow, has got to get a deal brokered between the Palestinians and the Jewish people to allow a temple to be built. And someone is going to do it. Someone is going to have the skill and the ability and the uh, power and the influence within the world to get a peace deal organised in the Middle East. And people are going to look at him and go, wow, if that guy can sort that out, why doesn't he just run the entire world? And he will. And for the first three and a half years of that, of that period, of that deal, while the temple is being built and temple worship is being reinstituted, things are going to be pretty good. And then in the middle, he is going to go into that temple and say, you've been worshipping the wrong God here. You're going to worship me. 
I am God and you are going to worship me. And the Jewish people are going to say, we've been done, we've been tricked. We've been had in a colossal con and they will turn and they will refuse to worship him and they will begin in their hundreds and their thousands to turn to the true and living God. And there will become a time of great tribulation upon the world. However, that is not the question that they asked. Because they said, when shall these things be? And he answered them, when you see this happened in the temple, it's all started. It's all on. It's happening. But then they said, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Oh, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Now it's interesting, they didn't ask a date. They asked for a sign. If you said to me, when is this going to happen? You want me to give you a date, don't you? Because that's the way we think. You want, if you said to me, when is something going to happen? You want me to go, oh, 15th of October, uh, you know, 2027, yeah, that's the date. Because we think in terms of dates. Jews didn't think in terms of dates. They thought in terms of signs. They didn't ask for a date. They asked for a sign. Now, this is an important thing, again, to understand about uh, Jewish people and the way they think and the way they thought then. Look over in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. What's this got to do with it? Well, let's see. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Christmas story. And there were abiding in the same country shepherds, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, that you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. They, the angel didn't say, go look for a, a baby and his mum's name is Mary and his dad's name is Joseph and he lives at, at 23, you know, Ben Yitzhak Boulevard. No. He said, go look for this sign. A sign. You want to know which baby it is? It's the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. The sign. You ever wondered why why signs? Well, there's a reason for it. That's very simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 explains why signs are so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. 
And, and Paul just explains really what, why the whole thing is about signs. For he says, For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You might not think it, but you're a Greek. You think like a Greek, because that's the way we've been brought up to think. The Jews require a sign. They want to see something. But us, we want to understand it. We want to... Yeah, how many times do people, when you talk to them about the gospel, they say, if I can't understand it, I'm not going to believe it. Why? Because they're thinking like a Greek. A Jew says, if I don't see a sign, I won't believe it. For the Jews seek after a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom or understanding. The sign is what Jewish people are, are, are so tied up on. Just look back a bit, in, in, still back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And you get this, this is a classic. So many times the same words keep coming up in Scripture. Verse 38 of, of Matthew chapter 12. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. How many times did they say that? They constantly said to him, show us a sign. Now even one time he just fed 5,000 people. And they came up and said, show us a sign. What, that wasn't good enough? And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas, or Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? That's the only sign you're going to get. But they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, if we apply the same pattern as we did before, you know, we said, okay, there's the question, when? And we look and we find a when. If we, look, if we go and say, what shall be the sign? Where do we find the term sign? Well, we look down, and we look down, and it's a long way. And then we find it in verse 36. my reference 30 yes thank you verse 30 and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven you want a sign that's the sign you're going to get the sign of the son of man in heaven now that's, that becomes important when we look at the next thing about this, the description of the end of the world or the end of the age. 
there is a, they wanted a sign, and he said, you're going to get a sign, but the sign will be when I come back. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. That's the sign. The problem with that sign, it's a little late. It's too late when the sign appears. They wanted a sign so they could get ready. The whole point is when the sign appears, it's too late to get ready. You should have started getting ready when you had the when. But no, they waited till they see the sign and what happens? The next thing that, that our Lord speaks about was the, the, the signs of thy coming and the end of the world. From that passage on, verse 30, right to the end of the Olivet Discourse, he is talking about what happens at the end of the world or the end of the age, the end of the system. And I want to just point out something to you. See if you can see a similarity between these references. Verse 38 and verse 39. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so all shall, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 30, 43. Well, this might sound a bit familiar, actually. But know this, if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Verse 50, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour that he is not aware of. Chapter 25, verse 11 and 13, afterwards come other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he answered and said, and said verily I say unto you, I know you not, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Go over to uh, verse 30 and verse 19 of the, the same chapter. And after a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. Verse 45, and then he shall answer them saying, uh, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of these, the, the least of these ye did it not unto me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous into life eternal. What's the, the main theme to all those, those references? Unpreparedness. Every single, the theme of every single piece of the rest of the Olivet Discourse from the statement of this will be the sign of the Son of Man coming in heaven is that people are not ready. Like Noah's, in the days of Noah's flood, the people weren't ready. The ark had been building, but the people weren't prepared. In the, the time, every description he, he makes here, the story of the... the, the um, the wise and foolish virgins. The foolish ones weren't ready. The story of the, the, 
servants, when their Lord goes on a journey and one begins to get drunk and beats up the other people and the master comes back when he's not ready. It's all about not being ready. The description even of the burglar. If I know what, what time the burglar's coming in, I'll be waiting for him. But what happens? People aren't ready. They're not ready. When shall these things happen? When you see a temple desecrated in Jerusalem, that's when these things will happen. What shall be the sign? The sign will be the return of Christ. And how shall people be not ready? That's how they shall be. The continual theme is of judgment falling on an unprepared and faithless generation. That's the theme of the Olivet Discourse. We look at it and we think, oh, you know, this has all got great, great information about prophecy and things to come. But it all boils down really to three points. One, it'll be kicked off by the desecration of a temple. Two, the sign will be when the Son of Man returns in clouds and great glory. And three, people won't be ready. They won't be ready for it. And if you like, that's, that's the Olivet Discourse in three points. No poem. But there's a parallel. There's a parallel here that I will put to you. There's a parable, a parallel, <coughs> to the whole message of the gospel is in the Olivet Discourse. The when. The when. Look to the scriptures. John chapter 5, verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. It says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You want to know the when? The date, the time, and the place of the arrival of Jesus Christ is all in the scriptures both prophesied and actual. You want to know the when? It's there. The where? Bethlehem. The, the, the when? In the reign of Herod the king, in the time of, of uh, uh, Augustus Caesar. It's all there. The when? The where? Bethlehem of Judea. How? Born of a virgin. It's all in there. You want to know when? That's when. The date and the time and the place of his arrival are there. The sign, well we already mentioned that. The sign is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The resurrection is the sign of of who Jesus is and what he has done. Understand this. There were other people who had been raised from the dead. Okay? Even in the Old Testament, there are people raised from the dead. What was unique about Christ? 
He did it himself. That's what was unique about it. That's, that's what makes it so utterly remarkable. Other people had raised someone else from the dead. That's fantastic enough. But to be able to do it by yourself, that is the sign. The resurrection is the sign of who Jesus is and what his capacity is. How important is the resurrection? How, how, just, how vital was it to the way they, they conducted themselves in the, in the New Testament? I'll give you a, a little example of that. Acts chapter 17, you don't have to refer to look it over, but Acts chapter 17 verse 18, Paul's preaching. Then certain of the philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. You notice that? Setter forth of strange gods. How could you ever mistake Paul's preaching, the the strict Pharisee that he came from and the the New Testament believer in Christ that he was, that he would ever preach God's plural. That he he would be mentioning strange gods. Not a strange God, but gods. Well, remember he's in a big crowd of people and it's really interesting that if you have a look where it says in Greek that he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus kai Anastasia. Jesus and the resurrection. And one person suggested, I think it could be right, that the guys at the edge of the crowd, all they could hear of Paul's preaching was, Jesus kai Anastasia. Jesus and Anastasia? That they overheard it as... Jesus and his wife Anastasia, strange gods. Because so closely linked was Jesus and the resurrection that when Paul preached, that was all he was on about. Now, if you only heard two words out of it, it would be Jesus, Anastasius, Jesus and the resurrection. That's how important it was. It was the whole thrust of his preaching and his teaching and the way he spoke was Jesus and the resurrection. Why? Because this is the sign. You want a sign? That's the sign you will get. The when, it's in the scriptures. The sign is the sign of the resurrection. And if any person ignores the message of Scripture and dismisses the sign of the resurrection, there is nothing left but judgment upon a faithless, unprepared, unbelieving generation. The message is in your Bible. It tells you what's happened, how it's happened, and it's all there. And one day... God is going to write damned to hell in the dust on people's Bible covers because they never opened them. The message was there and they never looked at it. There's a story. 
and it's it's a it's a classic. It's about a man who is trapped on a rooftop in a flood, and a motorboat comes past, and they say, "Get on, get on," and he says, "No, I've I've got a message from God that I will be, I will not drown in this flood. I will be spared from the flood." A bit later on, a guy in a canoe comes past, says, "Hop in." And he says, no, no, I have a message from God that I am not going to drown in this flood. Okay. A bit later, this helicopter comes across and says, rope ladder, come on, climb up. And the guy goes, no, no need. I have a message from God that I will not drown in this flood. Well, a bit later, the water comes up and he drowns. And he finds himself at the proverbial pearly gates with St. Peter and he says... St. Peter, I got a message I wasn't going to drown in the flood. What happened? St. Peter said, I sent you two boats and a chopper. What more do you want? God sent you the message. He said, this is the message. This is the person. This is the sign. The sign of the resurrection. What more do you want? And people keep coming saying, unless God does this and unless God does that. No. God has given you everything you need to know. He has told you about the Messiah. He has given you the date, time and place of his arrival. The means of his death. He's told you all about his sinless life. He's explained to you how he died for your sins. And he's proven it by the resurrection. What more can people want? Well, the answer is, they don't want to believe. It's not that they can't believe, or that there isn't enough evidence to believe. There's heaps of evidence. I, I work with prosecutors regularly, and let me tell you, they get a conviction on a lot less evidence than there is in this book. They don't want to believe. They don't want to accept that they are sinners in desperate need of salvation. They don't want to accept that their sins have set them apart from God. They're like the people who look at the, the message, who will look at the message of the in, in the tribulation time and they look at the, the, the temple and they see it made desolate and say, I don't want to believe that this guy is wrong. I want to go with him. And they choose not to accept the message that God gives them. It is not a problem that there is no evidence. It is not a problem that the evidence is not compelling. The problem is the willful disbelief of people. Now we talk, people will say, oh, you know, you know, faith, you know, the, the, there's a description that some people like to use about faith, that it's, it's believing in something without any evidence, which is not really a good definition of faith. But what do you call someone who disbelieves in spite of the evidence? Because that's what unbelief is. 
It's deliberately disbelieving in the message of God despite the evidence. The message has been given. The when is there in Scripture. The sign of the Son of Man is given. And if those who will not believe, there is nothing left but judgment. Judgment is not a pleasant thing, not a pleasant place to be. There's a, a little song, poem sort of a thing that I, I was drawn to when I, when I was preparing this. It says, God has given us a book full of stories, which was made for his people of old. It begins with the tale of a garden, and it ends with a city of gold. There are stories for parents and children, for the old who are ready to rest, but for all who can read them or listen, the story of Jesus is best. For it tells how he came from the Father, his faraway children to call, to bring the lost sheep to the shepherd, the most beautiful story of all. The message is given. The sign is shown. Please, if you have not received Christ as your Saviour, if you do not have the assurance and the belief in the sign that has been given of His resurrection, don't spend another day exposed to the possibility of an awful and terrible judgment. Come to the Saviour today. Make no delay. Thank you.